Hello everyone, welcome to this episode of The Crude Report. My name is Jim Washer, I'm Editor-in-Chief here at Argus, and with me today is Nada Itaim, our Editorial Manager in Dubai and our resident expert on all things OPEC, who's joining us today for this podcast to discuss the latest developments in the OPEC Plus Alliance. So it's been a tumultuous few weeks for OPEC. We've had some disputes, we now have a new deal, some new baselines, an extension, and some clarity on increases in production in the months ahead. So with all that's happened, Nada, how would you assess this new deal in terms of the issues it's successfully addressed and also any questions or problems it may be leaves hanging? Thanks, Jim. Um, right. So as you say, it's it's been a busy few weeks to say the least. And I think I speak for most OPEC watchers when I say the month or so gap until the first uh, September meeting. It's come as a very, very welcome break for all of us. But to go back to the deal now, now that we've had a week or so to really dis- dissect it, I think uh, I think it was as good an outcome as they could have possibly hoped for. Uh, by bringing the UAE on board and securing this deal to bring back the near 5.8 million barrels per day that it still has sort of withheld from the market, not by April 2022 as originally planned, but by the end of the year, OPEC Plus has effectively ticked all the boxes it needed to. Um, first, it, it secured the market in the short term. Second, it provided direction and guidance in the medium term. And third, Probably most importantly, it's kept the band together, so to speak. As for the lingering question marks, you'd have to say there are some, particularly with regard to the decisions to change the baselines of the UAE and for other countries from May 2022, and essentially how those changes will physically impact the market next year. There was initially a suggestion from some delegates we spoke to that the increase in the collective baselines would translate into the return of additional barrels to the market, sort of beyond and on top of the expected 5.8 million barrels per day. But we've since been given multiple assurances that this is not the case. The 5.8 million barrels per day that remains, uh, this is the only volume that's going to return to the market over the lifetime of this current deal. That said, Given the framework of the implementation of this current agreement, there are continuous reviews of the decisions that are taken in their monthly meetings. And and the group is also scheduled to review the decisions taken at this last meeting in December once again. So should any changes need to be made? I mean, there is plenty of time to iron these uncertainties out. Okay. And it sounds like maybe the baseline issue has not really been put to bed. Do you think there are issues here that could reemerge in the future? I'd like to think that it has been put to bed, but for now, as far as the current deal is concerned, but to think that it won't really come up again, it would be a little bit naive to say, not least because we already know that two other countries, uh, Nigeria and Algeria, they've both put forward requests that are still pending to have their baselines reviewed. And for Nigeria in particular, this is not the first time it's made such a request. I mean, just last November, it requested a reevaluation of its quota only to be shot down. But beyond these countries, and maybe one or two others, there may not be really much movement. As we reported in Petroleum Argus last week, if you consider that the majority of the countries in OPEC Plus at the moment um, are not really investing in capacity expansions over the coming years, I mean, you really have to question whether any of these really have any grounds for a review. If anything, I mean, a review may actually open themselves up to a baseline downgrade. I mean, what about the UAE? Did they get everything they want here or have they had to compromise? Well, 
although the UAE did secure a near 350,000 barrel per day increase in its baseline, so that's to 3.5 million barrels per day from 3.168 originally, I think. I mean, if we look at what they were originally campaigning for, which was an increase in its baseline to more than 3.8, that's in line with what OPEC secondary sources put their production at in April 2020. I think it's safe to assume that they didn't actually get everything they wanted. They, they did have to compromise. So who knows? I mean, this is maybe another reason why we could see this baseline issue reopened at some point in the coming months or year um, or beyond, really, if, if, say, there is talk of another, yet another extension beyond the end of 2022. The Saudi minister, Prince Abdelaziz bin Salman, he said in the run-up to last week's meeting that compromises need to be made, and, and the compromise is indeed what we got. I mean, this row between the UAE and, and Saudi Arabia, that's really where this whole baseline issue sort of started. And these are two long-standing regional allies. They're members of the Gulf Corporation Council, as well as long-standing members of OPEC, now at odds. Was this just, in your view, a technical dispute about baselines, about capacity, or is there something more going on here? Well, at the end of last week's meeting, the ministers of both countries, they made it a point to try and draw a line under the issue and show a degree of you know, commonality between the two. At least to me, the fact that the UAE minister, Sahel al-Mazuri, was, was the only other minister present at that press conference, you know, bar the prince who's always there as co-chair, I think it was a message. And for all intents and purposes, I think that message was heard loud and clear. But if one sort of takes a step back or two, it feels to me that this was, you know, just one chapter or one episode in the wider story of the development of the relationship between these two countries, rather than the story itself. In Saudi Arabia and the UAE, you have two countries whose differences are really slowly beginning to spill out into the public sphere as sort of overlapping economic competition and strategic differences on a number of key regional issues, Yemen being one, it's really beginning to put them increasingly at odds. But that's not to say that the relationship is deteriorating. I mean, personally, I'd say it's rather transitioning. Transitioning from one of what I think many would agree with unprecedented closeness in the years following the Arab Spring in 2011 to one of kind of a strategic and conscious competition. And to be honest, with the ambitious and relatively young leaderships in both countries, I think this was always to be expected. But as far as OPEC and OPEC Plus is concerned, I'll go back to something we've heard from several ministers in the past. OPEC is a family, OPEC Plus is a family, and all families have squabbles. This was not the first and certainly won't be the last that we have. But if anybody out there still feels that this could spell the beginning of the end for the UAE as a member of OPEC, personally, I'd say think again. I wanted to ask you about another relationship in the OPEC plus family, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and, and Russia, respectively the biggest OPEC and the biggest non-OPEC players in the alliance. That relationship has been key to keeping this whole OPEC plus pact on track. How is that looking at the moment? Will, will Russia, for example, have been pleased with or maybe frustrated with the way this new deal has panned out? So if we're talking about the deal itself, I'd have to say yes. I think they will have come out of that meeting quite satisfied with the outcome. Um, why do I say that? Well, if you consider that they were they were quite ready to back the original version of the deal, that is the deal that was on the table on the 1st of July, you know, the one that the UAE ultimately blocked, then you'd have to imagine that the final version was an even better outcome for it. 
Russia also secured a 500,000 barrel per day increase uh, in its baseline to uh, 11.5 million barrels per day from May 2022. Now, add to that the fact that Russia didn't really merit this change in baseline. What I'm talking about here is, of course, the fact that Russia has not really ever pumped anywhere near its original 11 million barrels per day crude output baseline, let alone the 11.5. So all in all, it definitely got more than, than it was bargaining for initially. But looking at the relationship more broadly, I'd say that the wobble that, that resulted in the uh, price war last year, after that episode, I think it's now solid once again. What's critical here when it comes to this particular relationship, it's always been a kind of mutual understanding of where each other stands in the group and really what each one brings to the table. I feel it's clear for all members, including the Russians, that it's the Saudis really that are the ones navigating the wider OPEC group through these uncertain times. But the Russians also play a very critical part and critical role in keeping the group together, which is why we've seen them get the odd concession here and there, just to keep them involved, keep them sweet. I mean, to me, this is almost certainly going to continue as long as OPEC plus is there. Okay, um, you mentioned there the sort of way the Saudis are navigating, steering the ship, if you like, you know, through these these sort of choppy waters of um, the sort of post-COVID uh, demand collapse. They've clearly, the Saudis, been talking a lot, thinking a lot about the longer term time horizon, how supply and demand may be next year, making sure OPEC Plus is answering that question as well as the shorter term challenge. What's their game plan here? What are the Saudis most concerned about? So it's two things here. When we talk about um, policymaking, when it comes to OPEC Plus and before them OPEC, the policymaking has really largely tended to be focused more on the short term, on the medium terms, rather than longer term um, horizons. And although this particular agreement is now going to take us to the end of next year, some 17 or 18 months away, delegates who speak to suggest this trend of focusing on the short to medium terms, it's likely to continue. This is for two reasons. First, many countries in the group, particularly those smaller non-OPEC producers, they find it difficult to commit to long-term policy decisions. Second, also the, the fact that the OPEC Plus has transitioned to meeting every month or so, it means that they're really well-equipped to change course at short notice whenever needed. So even when they set up policy for 12 months, for 18 months, 24 months, the last year or so has shown that they can and most certainly will change. But in terms of longer-term strategy and what they're most concerned about, for OPEC Plus, it's largely been an, a balancing act now for a little while. You know, at the moment, it's between shale and COVID-19, which some delegates feel, I mean, we could see this kind of balancing act all the way through to 2025, 2026, 2027. Beyond that point, many do feel in the industry that maybe, you know, after 2030, shale oil output um, may begin to drop. But with oil demand continuing to rise, yes, albeit at a slower rate, um, once shale production begins to wane, who's supposed to really come in to fill that gap? I mean, that's going to be OPEC, that's going to be OPEC plus. So as we've also been hearing from the Prince recently, core OPEC members do largely generally believe that demand for OPEC crude will recover um, at some point. This is where the supply crunch that many are talking about could materialize. There's so much underinvestment, especially in the upstream worldwide, because of COVID-19 and, and the financial strain on all of these companies. So it's not really a matter of geological formations not being able to produce more, but more the finances needed to fund these operations and, and new developments. So essentially, OPEC wants to make sure it's there several years down the line when it's called upon.
Okay, so that's kind of the longer term challenge, the longer term outlook. I mean, ahead of that, one issue for OPEC production planning is the possible return of higher Iranian exports should the Iran nuclear deal be revived. So two questions on this. How much flexibility does the current OPEC plus deal allow for coping with higher Iranian volumes? And what is also your view currently on prospects for reviving the Iran nuclear deal? Okay, so when it comes to OPEC plus, you have to say the flexibility is there be it with respect to a potential return of Iran to the market or any other unforeseen event that could impact balances. With this particular agreement, the, the mechanism that they've introduced to deal with that possibility is this window in which they could choose to pause the monthly output increases for up to three months to effectively make space for Iran in the market. But even without this clause, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the way this OPEC plus group has been operating, specifically when it comes to their now monthly meetings, it has almost ensured enough flexibility to react to any event as and when it comes. So planning is all well and good, but they've shown not only the ability, but also the willingness to change things up whenever needed. And that's definitely going to hold them in good stead if and when the Iranian nuclear situation is resolved. Speaking of the Iranian issue, however, I mean, things have hit something of a standstill at the moment as the incoming Iranian administration settles in. The latest we're hearing from both sides indicates that the talks are effectively on hold, at least until the new president takes office in the first week of August. So we're talking, you know, it, it's quite soon. It realistically could even be longer than that. The U.S. has signaled it's willing to wait for that, but it, it has stressed the need for urgency. Iran on its side, it could be playing a bit of a game of chicken. It could be delaying in order to gain the upper hand as it uh, ramps up its own nuclear program and capabilities. But again, this could be a big miscalculation. It could be a big risk. They essentially want to try and squeeze the West as much as they can. It is a risky game. It could hurt the talks. But again, the good thing is that so far the U.S. says it's still in its interest to negotiate. But uh, how long that's the case, it's, it's uh, anybody's guess. If we see their IC administration ultimately committed, and as committed to the talks as the Rouhani administration, I think we could see movement fairly soon, maybe September, maybe October, and therefore a return of Iranian barrels from late in the fourth quarter. We're talking about close to 1.5 million barrels per day of Iranian crude output uh, returning here. But if the RIC administration wants to play hardball, I mean, this could ultimately render the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, moot and uh, push both countries into cycles of escalation until they're ultimately ready to negotiate an entirely new deal at some point in the future. So we're running out of time here, but I've got one last question for you, Nada. Most observers would agree that this, this OPEC plus deal has been a success. It's been in place for more than a year now. It's helped support recovery in oil prices this year. We're back over uh, above over $70 a barrel uh, at the moment. But there have been tensions, there have been challenges this year, the Saudi UAE rail, the demands from Russia and Kazakhstan for higher output. So do you think they can hold this alliance together and keep it going, as you said now, until the end of 2022, even with Iran possibly returning? And how about beyond that? Right, so I would have to say yes. The success of the deal has always had its roots in, in collective understanding of, of working towards a common goal, the greater good, and one of compromise. On the one hand, everybody is aware of what this group has achieved. But also the bottom line is, is that everybody in OPEC+, plus, particularly the larger producers, 
they know the consequences of a, of, of a dismantled group, and no one really wants to go back to that. Right now, the group is looking at three broad questions. When will the market recover? Will Iran come back, and if so, when? And when will COVID-19 be contained? So as long as these questions linger, this group is not going anywhere in my view. But even beyond these issues, as long as there's a need for market management, I think you'll certainly have this OPEC plus group around. And depending on the needs of the day, we may see a different format of OPEC plus, but the cooperation, I think it's here to stay. I remember OPEC Secretary General Mohammed Barkindo in 2019, he described OPEC plus as, quote, a Catholic marriage that would last for an eternity. I mean, while I don't know if I'd agree on it lasting eternity, I'm pretty much on board with his characterization of the relationship as a marriage. But it's a marriage that's born out of necessity rather than luxury. Okay, thank you, Nada. Speaking of eternity, we are pretty much out of time now, I think. So thanks for taking some time to discuss the new OPEC Plus deal with us today and what it means for all markets. If you're interested in keeping up to date with our in-depth OPEC news and analysis, then why not subscribe to Argus Global Markets or Petroleum Argus or both? You can find more information on these services at www.argusmedia.com. So thanks for tuning in and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of The Crude Report. Thank you.